what Linda went through and her family went through, that's every parent's worst nightmare, right? I kind of went to a place where I thought I was going to be kidnapped. I don't, I don't know if I ever thought about being killed or not. When she was such a little kid, and I just changed her, you know? It disgusts me that I have to look at him, and I know that he knows that I know that he did it. You know, they always came looking at me, and it's like, I didn't do it. But we're not judged by how we treat our best people. We're judged by how we treat our worst people. We have DNA. What more do we need? This is a story about a sexual assault. So this is that warning to listeners who might be sensitive to that. And I'll go further, because it's a story about the sexual assault of a child. That's a hard story to tell, and it's a hard story to hear. And that's why I want you to know right up front that Linda Glantz, who's in her 40s now, is okay, even though what happened to her is not. So let me ask you uh, just how you're feeling about talking today. Nervous. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But good. Uh, I've never, I guess I've never taken the opportunity to talk about any of this to anybody outside my family. Yeah, and just so you know, there's like... My name's Jewel Banville. The first time I met Linda was in 2015 on the campus of the University of Montana where I teach journalism. And I've been thinking about her and what she told me that day ever since. After a lot of years of pushing it down, of not talking publicly about an event that upended her life, after never chiming in on all the crazy twists that have happened since this crime, she's changed. Now she wants you to know everything. And there's a lot to know. This is An Absurd Result, a story about rape and DNA. It's about what happens when an old case with new evidence churns through the legal system and leaves us wondering, well, how could that happen? How could a crime against a child, an entirely solvable crime with irrefutable evidence, how could it fall so cleanly through the cracks? This story is about that, about what happened with the law in this case. But it's Linda's story, too, the one she's ready to tell. It starts when she was eight and growing up in Billings. It's the biggest city in Montana, but it's really more like a big town. She was a kid whose parents gave her boundaries, but she would ride her bike to the edge of them. My best friend, Jessie, she lived right across the alley from me, and we were... You know, we would just run all over the neighborhood. You know, I knew I wasn't allowed to cross a certain street. I think it was Grandview. I can't remember. There's a little park called Rock Park. It's just literally just like this triangle park. There's not like a real park, but we would go there all the time and play. You know, as we got older, that's when it turned into going to the pool because we were allowed to go that far away from home. We rode our bikes there, yeah, every single day. She's the second oldest of five kids, a big Irish Catholic family. She had light brown hair, cut in a bowl shape a lot of kids had then. Me too, I had one of those. At frat parochial school, she was in the third grade. Earlier that year, her family had moved into this bigger house. There was a basement that had, I want to say, two or three bedrooms, and my parents had their bedroom down there. And my little sisters had one bedroom. My little brother had another bedroom. And then if you go upstairs, my sister and I each had our bedrooms. Um... It was the first time we'd ever had our own bedrooms. It was a really big deal. For some reason, my mom ended up in my little brother's room. I think he had a nightmare. He would have been three, maybe. 
She's talking about where everyone was in the house before dawn on March 20th, 1987. I don't know why I woke up, but I woke up and I could just see the light coming in from the hallway and there was somebody crouched kind of by the doorway. I don't know if I thought I was dreaming, but I wasn't immediately scared necessarily. Um, I just It just didn't really occur to me something horrible was about to happen. A man she'd never met had climbed up a swing set in her yard. It was just after 4 a.m. He used the swings to get to a bathroom window. He opened it, climbed in, and then thought to prop it open with a stick. He was getting it ready for his escape. Then he walked up the stairs to Linda's room and assaulted her. Since then, and for almost 35 years, the people involved have been living with what happened next. And I'll be honest, this part is hard. He kind of moved around one side of the bed, and I think the way I was laying, I was trying to get a better look. And when I moved, suddenly there was something on my mouth. It was like a, a, I want to say a sash to a dress or something. But he shoved that down my mouth. I remember he said, shut up or I'll kill you. Um, I kind of went to a place where I thought I was going to be kidnapped. I I don't know if I ever thought about being killed or not. But I remember I thought I was going to be kidnapped. I remember thinking I was never going to see my family again. Later, court documents would make it clear he committed three separate sexual assaults. He raped me vaginally, anally, and uh, orally. I remember orally the most vividly because I I choked a lot and gagged and it was very, very rough. Um, that part of it I remember more. I think because he was really, from what I understand, really drunk. It probably could have been worse. During the assault, Linda wasn't sure what was happening, and she was thinking about the others in the house. Both her parents were asleep, as were the twins, Annie and Steve. They were toddlers then. Steve had woken up, probably with a bad dream, so his mom had moved to his bed. The next oldest, Katie, was five then Linda and Michelle. Were you trying to be quiet? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would, you know, what if, I, I think I was also like, what if he goes across and to Michelle when he's done with me? You know, has he already been there? I had no idea. So. How did it end? I'm not sure if there was a specific reason why it ended, but it did end and he put a pillow over my face and said, don't move for, I don't even know if he said an amount of time, but basically said, you know, stay put, don't move or else. Before he left, he stole her mom's purse and her dad's coat. Then he went out the way he came in, through the bathroom window. I don't know how long I stayed in bed. Um, I think I threw on my robe. I didn't know my mom was in my brother's room, so I ran all the way downstairs to my dad. He saw I was panicking, so he's like, I will search the house. And he saw that there was a bathroom window open and called the cops. After two uniformed officers show up at Virginia Lane and ask a few questions, they know this is not a routine call. Within a few minutes, there's another knock, and it's two detectives. Detectives came very early in the morning. I believe I was still in my pajamas. Um... It was really scary. (laughs) Uh, These two men in suits in the house. I remember one of them was playing with my cat. So I tried to tell him what happened. 
I don't know how specific I got on in all of that because I didn't know. I don't even know if I knew all the terms. Because she was eight. I went to a Catholic school <laughs> and they don't, nobody talks to kids about sex at eight years old, you know? That's still true. I have two kids, both girls. When I was reporting the story, the youngest was eight. I still don't know what to tell her about all of this. Linda's three younger siblings didn't know what happened to her until years later when they found some paperwork relating to their parents' divorce. We're very snoopy kids and we dug up a lot of, or they dug up a lot of the divorce papers and specifically read about this. And I think I was a junior in high school maybe, so yeah, they never knew until they were really old, Hmm. so. Before they found those papers, they only knew that someone had broken in and took their mom's purse. The oldest, Michelle Dewberry, she knew more the morning it happened, though not everything. She's a mom now. Her twins were also eight years old when we met on her porch in Portland, Oregon. Hello. Hi, Michelle. Here she is trying to piece together that day when she was 11. When I woke up in the morning, it was because there were policemen in my room. And I didn't know what was happening. Um, I... I don't have a lot of memory of people like telling me what was going on. It was just like, go to school. We had to go to school, but Linda didn't have to. And no one would tell me what was going on, except I think maybe I knew that someone had broken into our house. So it like, I just remember feeling like this is not fair. I'm the only one who has to go to school. Linda's sitting on the couch in her pajamas, like this exciting thing has happened. I want to see what's going on. Like, I've never been this close to a policeman before. Um, And they're rushing me out the door. Linda's on the couch in her pajamas. I'm just pissed at her. And as I'm about to leave, Linda says, Michelle, he put his penis in my mouth. And I had no way of processing those words. Everyone in this family has been affected by this crime. Early on, at least for Linda's sisters and her brother, it was about the house. Because they'd have to move again. They just couldn't stay in this big house their parents just bought because of the break-in. One afternoon last fall, I walked there with Linda's youngest sister, Annie, who was three when this all happened. She's in her 30s now, and the only one in the family still in Billings. She rents an apartment close by. The house I actually grew up in is on Pine Street, which is like four or five blocks away. Okay. So we've always been close to this part of town. But you've moved around. Yes, yes. The family. Oh yeah, once my parents got divorced, we moved lots of places. Like, would you even know where it was if this wasn't like a big part of your family history? No. Right. <laughs> Okay, so where are we? We are on Virginia Lane, right by Pioneer Park. Okay. We're really near the house when she points out Pioneer Park. It's a big, lush area of the city, 32 acres, like the Billings version of New York Central Park. Virginia Lane is a busy, tree-lined street that runs past it. This is it. The house is a big, solid home on the corner, surrounded by other nice, middle-class houses. Yeah, I have very, very little knowledge of that house. And then once I, once I found out about the rape, it put, it sealed it more in my memory of where it is. Yeah. It was a shock that it would happen here in this neighborhood, but it would be anywhere. A man breaks in through an unlocked window. 
He rapes an eight-year-old and then leaves with no one else hearing what happened without being caught. There was the tiniest moment when Linda's mom, Katie O'Sullivan, didn't believe her. It was so far-fetched. She was little. And she said that there had been a man in her room. And my first thought was she had a bad dream. Linda's dad, Mark Tokarski, he thought the same. And I said, you know, Linda, sometimes these dreams can seem so real. And she yelled at me, it was not a dream. And I was just confused and perplexed and went down the hallway to use the bathroom and walked in the bathroom and was hit by a blast of cold air and saw a stick propping the window open. And I suddenly realized this really happened. You know, Linda wasn't the kind of kid that made up a lot of stories. And she was just your, you know, playing in the dirt, climbing trees, holes in the knees of her jeans, that kind of kid. And which made it that much harder, you know. The police believed Linda, too. There was no reason not to. Here's her mom again. Um, and they sat down living with Linda. They asked me to leave because I was crying so much. <laughs> so I went in the kitchen and listened. But uh, She said there'd been a man in her room and he made her, uh, you know, he sexually assaulted her. I have a transcript of the detective's interview with Linda. They asked her her address, her phone number, her parents' first names. On paper, she was just so calm, so matter-of-fact, pushing down how scary it all was and just answering their questions as plainly as possible. Question. Do you remember the first thing he said to you? Answer. You better shut up or else I'll kill you. Question. Okay, was your door open or closed to your bedroom? Open. Okay, was there a light on in the hallway? Yeah. What were you wearing? A nightgown. Question, did you have underwear on? Answer, yes. On page three of the 15-page transcript. Question, what did he do first when he took your clothes off? Answer, he started kissing me and stuff. Okay, where did he do that? Where did he kiss you? On the neck and stuff. Question, Did you still have the thing in your mouth? Answer, no, he put a pillow over my face. She told them he put his penis in her private spots. She told them it hurt. She told them enough so that they knew they might be in luck in the way of evidence. He'd likely ejaculated. He didn't wear gloves or a mask. He had a mustache. And she said he looked like a friend of her dad's. Even though it wasn't him, he just reminded her of that guy. Question. If you saw this person again, would you recognize him? Answer, yes. The detectives also talked to Linda's parents. We all gave statements and had to take Linda down to the police department to work with their uh, sketch artist. That sketch ends up being really important, and we're going to come back to it. But before they go to the station to work on it, Linda and her mom head to the Billings Clinic. A lot has changed with Linda's parents. They're divorced, and they're no longer in touch with each other. But on that day, they were both trying to do everything right. While Katie went with Linda, Mark stayed home and tried to think about what to do next. I had this notion, maybe this guy will return to the scene, not in an obvious way, but maybe he'll drive by and 
if he does, maybe he'll look, try to look. So I sat in front of the picture window watching cars go by, seeing if anybody looked in. My idea was that I was going to follow whoever did and just get the license plate. I wasn't going to confront anybody. And that was kind of futile. Meanwhile, at the hospital, the doctor Linda saw first was someone she sort of knew. The doctor that we initially went to was actually a classmate of mine, father. So that was, you know, obviously there's confidentiality. I wasn't, I didn't know about that at the time. But so I just thought, oh my God, everybody's going to know now. So everyone agrees, maybe a different doctor, maybe a woman. Linda's mom is with her as the new doctor completes the exam and confirms the assault. But really, that kind of glosses over what happened in there. Survivors of the rape kit exam know what it's like. It's not like a checkup at the gynecologist or getting a pap smear. It's more involved. It's more invasive. It happens just after something absolutely traumatic. So here's her mom and her 8-year-old. While a doctor examines and pokes and takes swabs from the most tender and private places of a little girl's body. Linda works in healthcare now at a hospital in Bozeman. In one of our talks in her dining room, she thinks on that day in the Billings Clinic. You're asked to, first of all, be naked in front of another stranger. Obviously, you know it's like a safe space, but they still have to examine you. And my mom was with me. Um, and the fact that my mom kept it together, I thought was pretty amazing too. Now looking back on it, I didn't think much of, you know, I didn't think about that at the time. But yeah, that was, that was tough too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Her mom says she knows she was there holding Linda's hand. But it, it's kind of just a fog. I met Katie O'Sullivan outside her house and we talked for a couple of hours in her dining room. We are in Southeast Portland. Oregon, uh, my place. She and Mark divorced in the mid-90s. He lives in Colorado now, and he's remarried. Linda, her mom, and her four siblings aren't in touch with him anymore because, well, it's complicated. Sometimes families are. They are all close to their mom. Katie moved from Billings to Portland a few years ago to be near her grandkids. It's a long drive from my house in Montana to her house in Oregon, But being with Katie in person helped me understand a lot more what it was like not only to watch Linda deal with this terrible event, but also to understand what it does to a parent. It is unbelievable. I mean, you've lived through it for decades, really. Uh, 30 plus years, yeah. When it first happened, of course, it was terrible. And, you know, take an (laughs) eight-year-old. Sorry. Take an eight-year-old for a rape kit. And she was such a little kid. And I just changed her, you know. And the uh, police were, they were good with her. They were as gentle as they could be, but it's tough, you know, to put a kid through that. During our talk, Katie cried, I cried. She still feels all the weight of being a mom listening while detectives interview her daughter about rape. She remembers specifically what it was like to try and keep up appearances. I can remember going, um, I guess it was Easter shopping. I don't know if it was clothes or whatever. It was out at the mall. And I stopped to get something to eat, and there was a table of four girls that looked like sisters probably. And they were laughing, having a good time. And I thought, how could anybody be happy? (laughs) 
Linda can't remember everything. A lot of the after is a blur. But overall, she remembers her parents just trying to hold it together. I feel like when you, you're there in this situation, I look back on it now, they did everything right, as right as they could. Um, you know, immediately with the doctors, with therapy, with, I mean, everything they could do. They were great, but they still had four other kids. I talked with Linda's dad on a Zoom call. In spite of the rift in his family, it sits with him too. It always will. I, I was horrified. Uh, I was in shock. Yeah. It was an amazing, amazingly cruel thing to do to an eight-year-old child. Just amazingly cruel. You don't think of things like that happening, even in movies, you know? Linda's parents noticed changes with Linda, of course. Her mom remembers loading her and the other kids into the car. Those were the old days we had to actually push the buttons up and down for locks, you know. And I get her in the back seat, or the kids in the back seat. By the time I got around to the driver's door, she had locked them already. Um, it might be a little bit of an exaggeration, but like if I'd go to empty the garbage, she'd lock the back door behind me. You know, she was uh, obviously nervous and, and scared. I think it changed me, but in a way that is so specifically eight years old, you know? Even though we lived in this house, we were actually only four blocks away or so from the house that I had spent most my whole life in at that point. Um, so we were still in the same neighborhood, but as an eight-year-old, I wasn't going outside to play, I don't think. Um, I was scared to go over to people's houses. I would ask for rides in this, honestly, totally safe little neighborhood. Linda's dad remembers turning his focus to the house. I would do things like install uh, yard lights that were motion activated. Very expensive at that time because it was a new technology, I guess. And uh, I went through the house and inside the windows, I made it impossible for them to open more than three or four inches. Nobody would be able to reach in and force them open either. And I slept with a hammer under my pillow. After this? Yeah, I had PTSD in a big way. I, this was not your, uh, no rape is ordinary, but this was kind of an extreme case where somebody broke into our home with well, seven of us in the house. Um, and that's another aspect too, the guilt you feel, you know, because you weren't able to protect your child. Um, she was supposed to be safe there, it's not your fault. I know it isn't, but you know, your head says that, but your heart says something else. Even though it's hard to go back there to the hours after her daughter was raped, Katie does, mainly because Linda asked her to talk to me. I want to know what else she remembers about the day it happened. When they left the hospital, they went to the police station. Linda was again steady and calm while she sat with the sketch artist and described the man who hurt her. He had short dark hair, a pocked face, and a small distinct mustache. And as the sketch artist was finishing it, uh, policeman or detective walked by and he said, I know that guy. Looks like Jim Bromgard. Uh, and it did. <laughs> Jim Bromgard is a name you'll hear a lot. Everyone called him Jimmy then. He was 18 in 1987. Cops knew him because he'd been in trouble. He'd stolen at least one vehicle they knew about. Now there's this sketch. So they start asking around. The next step is getting him in front of Linda. Tricky because of her age, but they asked her parents to bring her in anyway. 
So then I took Linda up to the county jail for a lineup. And I guess there were probably five guys that walked out and she had a, a novice reaction to one of them. And she identified Bromgard as the person that she thought had assaulted her. When the cops went to get Jimmy for the lineup, they didn't have to go far. He was already in jail for beating up another teenager. Cops were also talking to people he knew. A couple of them said, keep digging, this guy's no good. There were, we had a lot of old people in the neighborhood. So anytime like something was happening, vandalism of any kind or whatever, you know, they always came looking at me and it's like, I didn't do it. Jimmy had recently come home to Billings after a stint at Pine Hills. He calls it... Um, School of Hard Knocks. It's Montana's only state-owned correctional facility for juvenile boys. Jimmy got caught for stealing a Chevy Blazer. When the Billings cops show up to ask him about this crime, about raping a little girl, he didn't have a lot to say, and he didn't have an alibi. In the next episode of An Absurd Result, you'll get to know Jimmy Ray Bromgard and why the cops went looking for him. What did they tell you as the reason? They told me I was going for, for sexual intercourse without consent. Did they tell you it was an eight-year-old? Oh, they told me before what it was about, yeah. Hear Jimmy say a lot more next time in episode two. An Absurd Result is a production of Mopac Audio. It's reported and written by me, Jewel Banville. Executive producers are Jonathan Nauzaradin and Jonathan Beal. Sound editing by Robert Williams. Music by Nick Bomarito. We had production help from Shannon McGarvey and Chris Moss. Special thanks to Kayla Spaller, Nora Sachs, and Charlie Bolte for story help early on. For more, visit absurdresultpodcast.com. And follow us on social media at Absurd Result Pod. Thanks for listening.